0: This morning Another day Will it be like The others Just can't say Slipped on my hiking boots And pulled my backpack on Ooh, I'm feeling Cafe Con Leche is a sweet embrace. Now the road looks long and windy. Thank God it's not a race. Ooh. not foregone, that we know this affection, step by step, this journey is all our own. If you get weary along the road, worry not, come Friends will lighten the load. Our journey together is our next episode. Ooh, I'm feeling new. Ancient trees sing their magic song. Whisper in your heart that we all belong. Go those heavy burdens you carried way too long. Ooh, I'm feeling you, and I know it's a long time gone since we made this connection, and I feel it's not far gone that we know. This affection step by step, step, step never deeper. Step by step, this journey is all our own. day after day. Our journey has to say, We're a special gift to all. Them every way Love for each other is the only song to play Ooh, I'm feeling you, And I know it's a long time gone since we made this connection And I feel it's not forgotten
1: Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have been listening to the song Camino, I'm Feeling You by Joe Gennorio. That's Joe Gennorio Viscal, uh, his proper name. And I think there's a couple names in there, too. He's going to tell us in a moment. But it's from his CD that he re- released fairly recently called Feel the Rain. And he is on the phone with me right now doing his daily walk around the neighborhood. Joe, how are you?
2: I'm doing great, Todd. Thanks for the nice introduction.
1: Oh, you're most welcome. I have always loved the sound of your singing voice. Thank you. It has such a smooth... I don't want to call it a... a gosh, it's not a crooner's voice as much as I love crooner's voice. It's smoother than that. Now, have you always sung?
2: Um, in, that's a good question. So if you're... So yes, to myself, you know, in the car, <laughs> that sort of thing. So I've since I was a kid, I loved to sing. And um uh and the yeah, so I've always sung uh but not really f- for public until, you know, just the last 5 years.
1: You didn't sing like it, I mean, you never played guitar and sang at coffee houses or anything like that until the last 5 years? That's right but you must've played at home.
2: I did. I mean, um, so, uh, I started, uh, I taught myself how to play when I was a teenager. And, um, so, uh, and I played, you know, during my teenage years and then life happens, you know, I was in the (laughs) air, you know, I did was in the air force and Vietnam was going on. And then, uh, you know, I got out and you got to work and this and that. So, I got married, had a family, and all that time, I really didn't pick up my guitar and play at all, you know, um, so uh, it just sort of sat there, you know, in the closet, and then shortly before I retired, uh, which was about five years ago, I uh, I really wanted to get back into music, because now I had the time uh, to do that, so uh, I picked up my guitar, and Real familiarized myself with it, got some calluses on my fingers, you know, and, uh, and really delved into the whole process of, of playing and singing. The, the songs I used to play when I was a teenager, of course, I forgot them all, so uh, I didn't really have a repertoire, so I decided to write my own, and that's when I sort of started doing that.
1: Well, let's go all the way back. W- was your family... Like your mom and dad, and maybe some siblings, were they musical? Was there music around the house?
2: Um, uh, My mother, she was, um, well, she wasn't musical herself, but she liked to listen to music. So, and uh, my mother's Puerto Rican. So she would play this Puerto Rican music. They're called boleros. And boleros are like folk songs. uh, And a lot of them were written in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And uh with these um they were usually a group of three, and um they would sing in harmony. It was just beautiful music, and I just fell in love with with that and um so I've always listened to music. It turns out later out later on, I found uh my mother's uncle uh was a composer and uh wrote a whole bunch of songs um and I have his sheet music and i have a number of cousins that are musicians so one is a concert or two of them are concert pianists uh one is a percussionist and uh and i had another more distant cousin who was also a pianist that uh did a number of uh of albums so there is music in my family just not my immediate family
1: now Do you come by your singing voice naturally, or did you have to work at it?
2: Um, That's a good question. It's natural. Uh, It's natural, but I have, in the last couple of years, you know, listened to some YouTube videos, and uh, I even took, um, just recently, just last year, took uh, a semester of some voice lessons to try and improve my enunciation and uh, my range.
1: Now, how much did that affect your your vocal?
2: I think it really helped you know as you get older of course your your chords your vocal cords kind of stiffen up mm-hmm. so um the it's It's really helpful to be able to uh to practice these exercises and to you know limber up your voice and that sort of stuff and your whole your whole facial muscles, your posture that sort of thing such that um when you get ready to sing. You know, all things considered, including age, you can, uh, you know, you know, at least sing uh, decently so you're at least on key.
1: Now, are there, like, scale exercises uh, that you do to warm up? What's the process?
2: Yeah, so it is. Well, first you want to, oh, well, this is what my instructor taught me, is, is to really relax your muscles. So you, you you know, you kind of stretch your neck and move it around to uh, relax your next muscles. And then you sort of massage all over your jaw your face facial muscles, that sort of stuff, and uh just to try and get it relaxed and then you do a bunch of silly sounding exercise like uh you know like <laughs> you know do the raspberries you know with your lips to loosen them up and um and then there is some some scale type work uh mm-hmm. that you do uh with the different vowels. You know, so it, you'll start out with A or A ah or E or whatever. And you do some, uh, just some exercises, again, to sort of limber up your vocal cords.
1: Now, are you doing those exercises each time when you decide to sit down with your guitar and sing? Or is it more...
2: No, no I'm, way, I'm way too lazy for that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, don't tell anybody, but I am too. I took some vocal lessons back in the, the 1990s because I was having difficulty with my singing voice and uh the fellow gave me these exercises and they're on one of those little mini cassette recorder things that I had purchased to tape myself and tape him so I'd have the instructions but I'm like you I I think of it when I finish singing
2: <laughs> I know isn't that crazy so now that said I uh just this last year uh about a year ago I bought some recording some very basic and inexpensive recording equipment. So I bought an audio interface with, with two ports. Uh, I bought a recording mic and, uh, and some, uh, there's some DAW software to put it in. So I'm still trying to learn how to, how to put it in the DAW software, but before I sing, you know, to try and record something and still haven't quite mastered that, uh, I do those exercises so that when I'm singing to record something, that it's, you know, doing the best I can.
1: Well, I know that some of the gearheads who listen to this podcast, you're going to want to know what brand of, uh, equipment you purchased for that.
2: So I brought the, the PreSonus, Mm -hmm. uh, PreSonus has a, uh, a little kit that they put together and it includes the audio interface, uh, the mic, uh, the cables and two, um, two speakers, Mm -hmm. uh, um, Uh, that that come with the whole thing. And, of course, PreSonus has their own uh, digital audio workstation, which is called a Studio One, and uh, that comes in several flavors. And uh, so I've got all that in the bundle. I bought the whole thing. It was about, uh, I don't know, about 700 bucks, something like that, for that setup. So for an individual at home, you know, doing your best to try and – at least do some, uh, some wave files, recording it uh, so that uh, you can capture a voice and maybe some basic guitar and some percussion, that sort of stuff. And then if you uh, want to send it to uh, a regular studio, you know, you can do that. And uh,
1: Now, it did, so, is, is that what you did for these songs? Because I know you, you worked with Bill Bromfield.
2: That's correct. No, I didn't, because I, I didn't have any of that stuff when I d- did this with Bill okay so uh and bill is terrific by the way so um the um we it was a good collaboration between bill and i on the arrangements because i uh, had a pretty good idea on most of them what i wanted in terms of arrangement you know the bass and any piano keyboard percussion you know things of that sort and uh so and then bill came up with a lot of those um what do you call them the uh, the transitions yes yeah, the transitions, the arpeggios and and things of that sort, um, which really really made the song plus he was he was able to do the um, uh, the harmonies you mm-hmm. know and both he did some harmonies, some singing in there on several of the songs and uh, as well as the digital harmonies that we did, and he inserted some you know some uh, pieces in there that are just wonderful. So my hats off to Bill Bromfield. He did a wonderful job and uh I really appreciate the sound that my songs have and it's really due to his his great uh you know production support and engineering.
1: Now for the folks listening who don't know who Bill Bromfield is, he has a um a website dot ClockwiseRecords.com, clockwiserecords.com. His name is Bill Bromfield and he can do exactly what he helped um, Joe do is actually construct an entire album. Um, And I've seen his little instructional video and I saw it before I knew who he was, where he, he goes and does a very simple song. So it'd be fun for someone who's thinking of recording, maybe to check out clockwise records and bill Bromfield and, and maybe end up with as nice of a CD and recording project as Joe has here, which is, Really wonderful, by the way
2: oh thank you and and yeah, as I said a lot of the credit goes to bill uh on what he did and uh Bill worked for many years in uh in nashville mm-hmm. and his and his specialty in Nashville, because everybody has a specialty because the studios are so large uh was voice, so it was uh apropos
3: mm-hmm. that
2: uh he was really a voice specialist, plus he's a great guitarist, you know and has a good uh sense of arrangements. Now, uh,
1: now, was Lisa, his wife Lisa, on any of, I thought I heard some, some female uh, harmonies in there, too, or am I mistaken?
2: No, there's no, uh, probably just my higher voice, <laughs> but no, uh, <laughs> no, uh, no females uh, in there at all. Just Bill and I uh, were the only accordings. Uh, I did have um, a, uh, a fellow named Stephen Darnell, who was a flute, uh, a Native American flute player. And I heard him at a, uh, at a concert one evening, and it was just wonderful. And I realized that his flute would fit perfectly into one of my songs, uh, you know, which is From the Ramparts. And uh, because From the Ramparts is a song about my ancestors. So uh, I'm a genealogist also, um, uh, Todd. So um, I've done – I was fortunate enough to get a book – from Spain, that was written by my great great grandfather, about our ancestry on, you know, some of the family, and then there was a story, taken from the chronicles of no the the uh, yeah the chronicles of ancient Aragon, and it was about my uh, ancestors and uh, how they had uh, they had resisted the Moors when they invaded in the in the 700s. And uh, they were up in northern Spain, right at the foot of the Pyrenees, they resisted the Moors, of course they were overrun because there were too many of them and uh, they ended up retreating to the mountains and uh and they joined a larger group of people who then started what they call the Reconquista, which is the reconquest of Spain, which took seven hundred years by the way. it wasn't until fourteen ninety two when the Spanish finally uh, or you know recovered all of the Iberian peninsula from the uh from the muslims so uh i was inspired by that uh by that story and i sort of with a little poetic license expanded on that and just uh imagined you know them in their little fort there and i've actually been to that town i went to the town where they were and it is a hill fort there um in spain and I uh, just, you know, like I said, imagine what it was. And then I wrote this song about, uh, you know, about their their engagement and then their survival.
1: Well, let's listen to a little bit of that song so people can, can get an idea of what it sounds like. Is that good for you?
2: Yeah, just a note there that you'll hear a, uh, a penny whistle in there. And that's Stephen Darnell. Who did that. I, after his show, I went up to him, and, the nicest man. He is. And asked him, if I said, I got this song and your, you know, your flute sound is perfect for this song. Would you mind, you know, uh, making a, an arrangement for that? And he, we decided the penny whistle was the right thing. And so you'll hear that in there. And so uh, thanks to Stephen for that.
1: Well, let's listen to a little bit of From the Ramparts.
0: Morning air is sweet. My eyes, they're so heavy from no sleep. These arms, they hang desperate at my side. My sword has delivered so many on high And from the ramparts I see that my brothers are gone, from the arrows and swords of the moors And the joy of our days has been plundered and gone, from the arrows and swords of the moors From the arrows swords of remorse My wife and my children from the mountain they watch In their hearts they know that the battle is lost But hope runs strong in the blood of my And from our prayers to God and the force of our minds The soul of my people lies deep in this earth As I gaze across the valley, the fields of our birth For a thousand years they toiled on this land And now at last we must make a stand And from the ramparts I see that my brothers are gone From the arrows and swords of the moor and
1: the you know that could be a soundtrack for a movie
2: well that would be nice
1: <laughs> I can just uh, see I can just see myself sitting in a in a theater once we can go back to them with that surround sound that they use in most in most most theaters now and having a vista come up and then that song just Maybe hear the the beginning with the penny whistle with a blank screen, and as the rest of it kind of kicks in slowly have the the vista kind of come out of the mist almost that would be phenomenal
2: that would what a what a wonderful image that is <laughs> I, you know, I really like it um, you know when i uh, when I went to Spain and I went to the town that was mentioned in those ancient chronicles you know uh there was the old Moorish Fort. When the Moors came in, they, um, and chased everybody out. They actually built their own fort on top of that. So this was a, this was a hilltop. It was right at the foot of the mountains. with actually three layers, originally a Roman fort and then a, uh, and then my family and then a Moorish Fort and then the Spanish conquered them and then sort of built on the Moorish Fort themselves. And it's still there. Uh, the whole thing is still there. So it was quite, uh, quite remarkable to see that
1: now was your family considered royalty at that time or were they just like the leaders of that particular community
2: so yeah my uh my mother's family actually both sides of my family descend from spanish nobility um so we i genorio my my uh, fifth great grandfather was knighted so we have a coat of arms uh for him and my mother's uh my grandmother's side the Garriga which come from that song uh yeah they go back over a thousand years and uh we have a coat of arms with them too uh but in the course of history they all intermarry so once you plug in the nobility you go back to everybody you know because they all intermarried so you get so many branches that go back to this king or that queen or that duke or count or whatever so um So when I was walking the Camino across – and people don't know what that is. That's about a 500-mile hike across northern Spain. Uh, It's an ancient pilgrimage that started about a 1,000 years ago. And uh, it was – the purpose of the pilgrimage was to go to the uh, Spanish city of Santiago, which is supposedly the burial place of St. James. And uh, it's been an ancient pilgrimage. So, you know, people – who misbehaved, or people that just wanted to gain merit in the Catholic tradition, uh, you know, for their bad behavior, would walk the Camino. And by the time they got to Santiago, they could ask for forgiveness. And, and everybody did it. I mean, kings did it. Common people did it. You know, so it was, uh, it was a big deal back in the Middle Ages. Uh, and there were two pilgrimages, one to Santiago and one to Jerusalem. And uh, so the one to Santiago still goes on today. And uh, people from all over Europe, actually all over the world, uh, take that pilgrimage. Uh, I walked it two times, and um, so I was inspired. That's why I wrote that song. to me know I'm feeling you.
1: Now you have something in common with Martin Sheen, then, because Martin Sheen was the lead actor in a, a movie where he follows in the footsteps of his son, who dies unfortunately during that uh, his own 500-mile pilgrimage, and he goes to. Kind of figure out why if people haven't seen that, and so you get a. You can go to Joe has a, a YouTube that you can find on his website, which is Genorio One dot Wix site, and Wix site is W I X dot com, and Genorio is spend. It's spelled G I N O R I O number one dot wixsite.com com, and you can actually pull up a. Video that he put some of the photos of when he and his lovely wife Chris did their two thousand. I think as I it was two thousand seven. You did the the last one, wasn't two, it? Uh, two,
2: thousand seventeen.
1: Right, that's what mm-hmm. I meant. Two thousand seventeen, and right. the um and so there's photos of, of both of you people that you probably hiked with, and then photos of you smiling. Beautiful smile, by the way. <laughs> Thanks,
2: Doc. Well, I smile a lot, so uh, it is. Uh, I would recommend it to anybody that. Likes to hike, or you know, you don't have to necessarily do it as a religious thing because most people, in fact, didn't. You know, they did it uh, because they wanted to do it, uh, just to hike to something that they accomplished. Um, So there was a real mixed bag of people. Some people did it for personal reasons. I mean, for you know, just they wanted to do the hike, some for spiritual reasons, some that were Catholics and were doing it to, you know, to go to the cathedral. So uh, and they ask you when you get done with the Camino, you go to the uh, to the cathedral and they will uh, you have a passport. Uh, it's called the Camino Passport. And every night you have to get a stamp. So you stay in these little hostels and the hostels cost about 10 bucks a night for a bunk bed and uh, and a cheap meal. Uh, and you get a stamp. And so when you finally get to your destination in Santiago, you go to the to the cathedral office there and they have all these people that look at your passport and if they validate it, then they give you what's called a, a, uh, a compostela, which is a certificate. that uh, They write your name in Latin and they validate that you walked this distance and that you did the Camino and so you end up with a certificate.
1: Now, how did you train for that? If you did. I,
2: you know, that's a good question. You know, I, I went hiking up to... Um, uh, to Gambrel, mm-hmm. uh state park. It's an excellent, uh, because of all the Hills, uh, it's an excellent uh, place to, to practice hiking. But the fact is that, uh, it's not a race. So you, you walk at your own pace, you know, you know, very slow. I'm a slow walker. You know, I'm a member of a group called the strollers of the Camino. So I just strolled and I would walk anywhere from seven to 12 miles a day. Uh, at my own pace. So uh and you carry a backpack. So the only thing you need to get used to is carrying a backpack, but aside from that, I think most people in in you know relatively decent health can do this.
1: So that must have taken you well tell me how long did it take you from start to finish?
2: It took me about uh 5 weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, about 5 weeks uh to do that hike and again I was strolling most people do it. uh, The young people that walk twice as fast as I did, uh, they, they do it in about 30 days. Wow. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, when did you walk it the first time?
2: Uh, my wife and I walked it in 2017, Uh uh, in the, in the fall. And then, uh, that following spring, uh, I just felt called to do it again, but I needed to do it by myself, a solo trip because it was a more of a spiritual thing for me. Uh, When my wife wife and I walked, it was more of a social thing, but Mm -hmm. I needed a more spiritual experience. So uh, I went back the following spring in May of 2018, and uh, again, I strolled my way across northern Spain.
1: Well, there's one song on your CD that is Sounds of the Falling Rain, and of course the CD is titled Feel the Rain. And was that written because of... It says on your site, it says, "Imagine having coffee in a cafe, gazing out the window onto the sidewalk, it starts to rain." Was that an image that from the hike, or was that an image from something else?
2: No, that was a, a previous to the Camino. I wrote that song, you know about I don't know five, six years ago, maybe a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, no, it was, a, it was a waking dream, Todd. Uh, strangely enough, I woke up one morning. And I had this dream where I'd been sitting in this cafe in New York and it was so quiet and peaceful. That it started to rain and the rain as it hit the window. You know how that it, you know, when it just starts. It just sort of stops there. The drops stop. And then as they accumulate, they just start to roll down the window. And then I looked out onto the sidewalk, you know, and the, the rain was coming down and people were walking by and, uh, the, the, you know, the water was splashing, you know, from their feet and so on. And, uh, but inside, it was perfectly quiet. And, uh, and so everything else was kind of muted. And it was a wonderful image. And this song came to me uh, right then, right that morning. And so I got up and wrote it down and, uh, you know, did a little rough recording. And there it is.
1: Well, let's listen to about two minutes of it. Does that sound good? Sure. Sure. Here it is.
0: Sounds of the falling rain touches me again in the silence of my heart Streaks of water on the window pause hesitate on an unseen fall. Gently on their way, dancing raindrops on the ground. Can you hear their muted sound? Speaking softly. brings a peace that is always in my reach and God's tears have cleaned my soul and made me whole and made me whole People passing
1: Now, is that second voice that we hear, we just heard, is that you?
2: No, that's Bill Bromfield.
1: It blends so nicely.
2: Yeah, he has, uh, yeah, on, on a number of my songs, he did the, the high harmony uh, on that. Um, I'm incapable of harmonizing. You know, the, the track in your brain that allows you to, you know, to do a third or a fifth or whatever, you know, to sing along with somebody is, is corrupted. So I'm uh, <laughs> I'm not able to do a, a harmony at all. I've tried, and and people, you know, chase me out of the room and stuff.
1: So <laughs> doesn't work. Well, you know, knowing how nice your voice sounds, I doubt seriously that anyone chases you out of the room when you're singing.
2: <laughs> well, thank you, Todd. It's uh, but when I harmonize,
1: you know, I, I get you
2: get that that cringy looking face. You know. Oh.
1: You know, so I don't do it. I'm with you there because people will say, Todd, you sing the harmony. And I'll start to sing and they'll say, no, you're singing the melody, sing the harmony. I said, well, I I was. And they go, no, you're not. You're (laughs) singing the melody. So I I fully understand. Now, was singing in the studio, and I've never been to Bill's studio, so I don't know if it's a, a separate space from his house or if it's in his basement or wherever it is. Did you feel nervous singing for the first time? When it's being recorded,
2: uh, yeah, just a touch, uh, but not really. I'm, I'm, uh, you always get nervous when you get up in front of, in front of people and you're going to do something like that. But I wasn't really nervous there because Bill made me feel very comfortable, and uh, he explained to me, you know, the process and how it's going to work. And uh, my focus was to was to internalize the song that I was getting ready to sing. So that it was coming from my heart and not coming from a mental place, you know, of being worried about this out of the other. So uh, and that was my focus. And I know we did some takes and Bill would say, Joe, that was a really good take. And I said, no, I said, I can do it better. I just need to refocus my attention. And so I would sort of settle into my heart space and, um, and do it again. And he said... And I remember Bill Connors, you're right, Joe, it was a much better take. So
1: so how many takes did you do on average each song before you were happy with it?
2: Um, probably three or four, I think would be uh, an average number. At yeah. least, yeah, a minimum of three or four.
1: Which is uh, not not many, really.
2: No, it's not, because I would prepare myself. You know, I went in ready to do that, because you know, we would do different segments every time I visited, uh, his studios in this home, by the way, it's kind of in the lower part of the house, um, you know, down some steps. And, uh, so you're actually, he has this room that's, uh, you know, with the soundproofing stuff. And, um, the, uh, the mic is actually facing a corner and he turns off everything in the house, you know, the heating, the air conditioning, whatever's going on, you know, so that the whole house is quiet. And, um, uh, then he, you know, sort of closes some doors and, uh, you know, you record.
1: Well, the end result is terrific.
2: I I thought so. I thought Bill did a great job engineering this thing. And, um, yeah, I was just really pleased with it.
1: Now, did you, when you first went in, how did, what did he have you do? Did he have you just sit there and play the guitar and sing your song so he got an idea?
2: Uh, no. What I did was I made a rough recording just on my smartphone mm-hmm. and uh and I sent it to him. And I would also send him the, the lyrics and the chords, you know, so um which I had of course written all down. So I sent him the, the the basic fundamentals of the song and um so he could hear it and get a sense of what it was and he would do uh, he would figure out the tempo of with this song. So is this, you know, 100 beats per minute, 95, 110, whatever, you know, uh, figure out the tempo of the song. And uh, and then we would talk on the phone about what I was looking for, what kind of arrangements, what, you know, what parts, et cetera, just my whole thought process around the song. And uh, he would do what he called a practice, like uh, a, uh, a, a, uh, a, vocal, a, a practice track, mm-hmm. so just like on a keyboard or something. He would just do the song on a keyboard, you know, and, uh, and follow the pattern. He would set the tempo, follow the pattern so that the tempo was consistent throughout the song, because when we do live, we tend to change the tempo. We do. We slow it up here, yes, totally slow it up, speed it up, whatever. So he said in order to maintain some consistency, that is why he does this practice track. And uh, so he sends that to me, and I practice singing to that track. So I'm, you know, by the time we schedule to go into his studio, you know, I'm ready. Uh, I've been singing it, practicing it, and uh, I got the tempo down. So he plays that, you know, over the uh, headphones, and I sing to that practice track. And uh, so uh, it makes it a lot more efficient to do that way because, you know, I'm not a rich guy. So, uh, you know, the time in the studio costs, um, so the better prepared I am, you know, for that time, uh, you know, less time you, it's not so ex- expensive.
1: Now, did you, is the first thing on each one of the songs, or maybe it differs from song to song, was the first thing singing the song or was it laying down guitar tracks and things like that? How did you put the so, song together?
2: Yeah, no, the first thing was the the voice. Mm-hmm. So, uh was uh, putting it down. Um we did do uh I did some of the guitar tracks and Bill did some. Um so like for example from the Ramparts, um I had a particular picking style I was using on that song and uh but my guitar did not record well for some reason, you know, for that. And Bill couldn't do that style. So he did an alternative style, which worked. I said, okay, let's do that. You know? So uh, that was fine. And uh, so, yeah, it was a mix.
1: Now, from the time you sent him the rough tracks so he could give you the, the scratch track on piano... Between then and when you ended up finishing it so you could master the the CD, how long of a period of time was that? So
2: that could, because it was intermittent, Mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't like you spend a whole day there. I would go for maybe one hour, maybe two at most, you know, at a time. So it would take about a month, you know, uh, maybe once a week, you know, going in for, uh, you know, for a session on something. And, And Bill was great, so he would do... you know he would do a good uh like the um the camino track uh i did that on my guitar but he has a really nice tailor and he was mimicking my exact uh uh, picking and strumming on his tailor which recorded a hundred times better than, than my takamini did at the time so um i said let's go with your track bill it sounds so much better so, uh, the Camino, although it's my playing, you know, and, uh, my arrangement, uh, it's his guitar and mm-hmm. his picking, you know, through that. And, uh, he did it perfectly. So, uh, so he would do that and then send it to me. Uh, he would send me a file, you know, the WAV file and I would listen to it. And then we would talk, you know, on any changes or modifications and this, that and the other. So it really was a collaboration. So he would come up with some, maybe some, uh bass parts, some percussion, some, um, you know, other types of guitar parts, or, you know, in the um, sounds of the falling rain, in the beginning, he originally had some rain, sounds of rain coming down. And, uh, but I didn't like it, you know, I said, uh, that's not quite right. At the end of the song, there's some sound of water. But at the beginning, I wanted a very quiet, uh, slow introduction, which is what we have.
1: hmm So from start to finish, so that you now have a complete group of songs ready to put on your website, was it six months, a year, year and a half, two years? How long did it take, the whole process, to get all six songs finished?
2: I would say uh, about five months.
1: That's not that long.
2: No, no. No, not long. And we're we're doing it part-time, you know, so, um, you know, like I said, once a week I'd go to his house or... Uh, once or twice a week, he would send me uh, a sample. Joe, I'm thinking of putting this piano piece in there or this arpeggio or this or that and the other. What do you think? And um, so, and I would say, Oh, that sounds great, or eh, not so much. So, uh, and uh, so it, I thought it was a pretty good collaboration. Bill is very matter of fact, you know, uh, he's, he tells you, you know, you're the producer. You tell me, mm-hmm. you know, what you want. I'll give you some ideas and some thoughts and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's your decision, you know. So uh, he's very uh, direct like that, so, um, which was fine, you know. So it ended up, I thought, with a pretty good uh, result at the end of the day.
1: Oh, it really did. And for those folks listening, if you'd like to purchase the album called Feel the Rain, you can go to Joe's website. Again, it's Genorio. The number one dot wicks site dot com, and right underneath the list of the six songs says buy album. You can hit that little thing, or you can buy individual tracks also. But now yeah. I have a question for you okay. Is you said you um, went into the Air Force? Now, did you go into the Air Force directly from high school, or did you attend college first?
2: Well, good question. Uh, no, I did go to college first. Um, so I, uh, let me retrace. So I left home when I was 15. 15? Uh, yeah, it, years old. That was a, a drinking issue with, you know, some family stuff. So I won't get into the details, but I left and I went to the streets. I lived in the streets of D.C. Uh, for about two years. And uh, this was in the 60s, so they're all hippies. You know, so it wasn't so dangerous as it may be today, Um so, uh, and actually it was not a bad life. You know, you learn how to survive in the streets, how to get food, you know, how to find a warm place to sleep and all that sort of stuff. In fact, I've just written a song about that. I haven't, uh, you know, recorded it yet. And uh, and I had I had a, a guitar that I had borrowed from somebody and I would, you know, I was I was just learning to play, but I'd, I had a great memory and I had all these songs, Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and all that stuff. And I would sit in the park at, uh, DuPont circle, you know, and just sit down there and play some music. And, you know, uh, people would give me nickels and dimes, you know, which let me get some food. Um, so that's how I sort of started out. But then, uh, when I, uh, turned, when I was 17, uh, I had an opportunity to go in the merchant Marines. So, uh, I went into the, they have a boot camp down in southern Maryland in Piney Point Maryland and I spent two months in boot camp down there and afterwards the coast guard issues you your uh, seamen's papers and I spent the next two years hopping ships going around the world so I I went to Africa and India and Sri Lanka and South America and Central America and literally all over the world and um the nice thing was, on the ship, the third mate was an excellent guitar player, and uh, he taught me how to do several finger-picking styles. So the good news was, when you're sitting out there in the ocean up on on Bow Watch, I'm practicing picking styles. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that kind of worked.
1: Just you and the dolphins.
2: And the seagulls. And the huh? seagulls, right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, what types of ships were they? Were they cargo ships? What were you transporting or not?
2: So, yeah, the first ship was an old Liberty ship. Uh, Liberty ships were those ships they built uh, during World War II. They were troop carriers and cargo carriers. And uh, some of them had survived into the you know, 70s and 80s. And um, so I was, the first ship was an old Liberty ship. And the thing broke down in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, so you're just kind of floating around for a while until they get it sorted out. But um, so, yeah, I went all over the world in an old Liberty ship, and uh, the next time I went on a container ship, uh, which is, you know, you've seen those big uh, steel containers that they pile up on these ships, and uh, I did the uh, East Coast run, so it went from New York all down the coast into Puerto Rico and then back to New York, just back and forth, uh, you know, a dozen times.
1: Now, how did you get from Merchant Marine to the Air Force?
2: So um, so I went, I was. I spent 17, 17 uh, uh, 18, and part of uh, 19 years old in the Merchant Marines. Uh, and then uh, I settled down into uh, New England, I had some friends up on the North Shore, uh where Boston, uh, just north of Boston. Mm-hmm. And I started school there. Uh, I started going to uh, community college part-time and uh, um, I ended up getting offered um, a whole series of scholarships. I was a good student, Todd, I was just fortunate to to be a good student and I got offered uh, scholarships to a whole bunch of Ivy League schools, uh, in Boston College, Boston University, Tufts, uh, Harvard University, Princeton, and a few others. and um, and I visited them. I went to all of them and decided on Boston College. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a uh, an accelerated uh, medical program there. And I wanted to be a research doctor. And um, but uh, Vietnam was going on, and I didn't have the money uh, to to. Uh, I had I had just got married, by the way, so <laughs> I had a wife and two kids. And I didn't have the wherewithal to support them while I was in college. So I ended up saying, if I had the GI Bill, this wouldn't be a problem. So I went in the Air Force
1: now, and bef- did a tour. Now, before getting into the tour and, where, and how that moved on forward, what part of the North Shore of Boston did you, what town did you live in?
2: I lived in Lynn. Oh, sure. Lynn, Massachusetts. Yep. I have a, so, very, I
1: have a very good friend who still lives there.
2: Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> poor bugger. <laughs> yeah, because I I
1: grew up on Cape Cod, and so okay. I'm I'm a New England boy until 1990 when I moved down here. But ah, yeah, so that's interesting. So you went into the Air Force? Did you immediately after boot camp? Did you go over to Vietnam, or what? What transpired?
2: No, fortunately, I I was able to stay out of Vietnam, although I got orders mm-hmm. to go. But um, so no, I did a I did a tour. Uh. It was um, uh, mostly in California, northern California. I was stationed at a, at a strategic air command base. Uh, we uh, supported the SR-71s, which are those spy planes. Uh-huh. Uh, so you, you can see them at the ADVAR-Hazy um, uh, uh, Aircraft Museum down by Dulles Airport. And uh, they were, at the time, they were classified. So they were secret. And uh, so, yeah, I spent my time supporting those aircrafts. Uh, I did get orders once to go to uh, to Vietnam, uh, but it was a very sketchy. Uh, or it was ordered to volunteer, you see. <laughs> so they had, uh, uh, and I got these very kind of uh, weird orders. I didn't understand them, and uh, so I, I went to the NCO club with some buddies, and I said, "I don't understand these orders, guys. What the hell does this mean?" And uh, they looked at it and said, oh, my God, buy Joe a beer. We'll never see him again. <laughs> you know? So I said, well, what is it? They said, evidently, they, had, uh, they would send reconnaissance planes into North Vietnam. And they got shot down pretty regularly because all those pilots, of course, they'd be in the Hanoi Hilton and um, use as leverage.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so, but they would, but the, the defense intelligence would send these gunships, these helicopters, looking for the plane try and recover the pilot and the camera. Uh, and since I had the clearance, because the SR-71s are spy ships, you know, with cameras, so I knew about them. Uh, they needed uh, 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 expendable personnel. Expendable. You know, <laughs> expendables. right. So they would, if they found the, the plane where it went down, they would go down and hover quite low and then send you out there to rummage around in the wreckage looking for the camera, you know, and or the pilot. And uh, of course, the pilot would be gone because they shot it down and they went there. And they were always waiting. You know, there'd be a squad of North Vietnamese soldiers waiting. And what happened is, is that, you know, as soon as the person would get on the ground and start rummaging around, they would open fire. Uh, But all of the everybody else was safely inside the gunship, you know, Uh, an armored gunship. And this poor buggers out there, he's, you know, he's done for. So they were running through these young uh, people like, you know, like water. So that was the orders. And I, I went to the colonel, our commanding officer, and I said, well, sir, and I explained to him, this is what I understand this is. He said, that's about, he said, that's about right, son. Mm-hmm. And I said, I said, well, colonel, I said, I don't want to do that. You know, I said, I said, if, if I was rescuing a pilot, I'd be the first one in line, but for a camera, you know, I don't want to die for a camera. Yeah. And, and he said, well, son, you know, if you don't go, you're going to, I'm going to be mighty disappointed. And I said, well, Carl, I said, I can disappoint you or I can die. You know, <laughs> I said, that's not a tough decision for me. So, uh, so he kind of got pissed off at me. And, um, two weeks later I get orders for a weather station on the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. You see, this, this is my punishment, right? So I go back to the NCO club and kind of shake my head. I said, oh, the colonel's angry at me, and he's sending me off to this Kwanzaa hut on an iceberg. And uh, and some guy who I didn't know, he says, that's in Alaska. I said, yeah. He said, well, I want to go there. I said, look, pal, you don't want to go here. You know, this is a punishment. And uh, yeah, I do. So, you know, we sat there, and he fussed at me about going to this Alaska station and I said, if you still feel that way tomorrow, we'll go to the to the base personnel office and trade orders because you could do that if you were the same rank and occupation. So we did the next morning. I said, I want to go just All right. So we traded orders and I, I stayed the rest of my tour there in northern California.
1: Now, when you say you were in support of those that aircraft, what was your actual job?
2: My my job title was fuel specialist. OK. Okay. So, um, it's pretty low down on the scale. You know, they, they had originally offered me to be an air traffic controller. Uh, but that air traffic controller went immediately to Vietnam. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to avoid that. And, uh, so, uh, so I chose the, the, uh, the least occupation, which was a fuel specialist, which, you know, it's not complicated. And, uh, so that's what I did.
1: Now, how long were you in the air force?
2: Uh, a little over two years.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, it was a short tour because uh, this was, uh, you know, nearing the end of the war, and as they were short, they were just starting to wind down, and they came to us one morning at roll call and said, "You know, we're we're downsizing. Who's going to imagine the military? And uh, anybody want to get out? You know, <laughs> of course, just, you know, a number of us raised our hands, and that was it. It was pretty simple."
1: Now, do they just give you your walking papers and you're shown the gate, or how does that work?
2: No, uh, not exactly. So um, this was a, a, a maybe list, right, uh, a, a maybe list. So um, uh, they kept that maybe list, I don't know, for like six months, and we're all kind of waiting, hoping to get some discharge orders, you know. Okay, well, here's the deal. Uh, but it, it didn't come, but they were amenable to people wanting to get out, So what I did was I submitted conscientious objector papers, and uh, which was a very complicated process. Uh, But I did it. You know, I I did the paperwork. I went to the uh, psychiatric evaluations. That you spend like two or three days being evaluated by psychiatrists. You get interrogated by lawyers. You get questioned by uh, ministers of various faiths and. A whole variety of things to test your veracity and I passed all the you know all the gates so uh, they wanted to let people go anyway so it was a it was an easy transition
1: now this whole time you're still married you still have two children living living in in Northern California so what happened when you got out
2: well uh, just before I got out my wife's ran off with a race car driver, you know, so, oh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, so I had just, just before I got out, I had actually moved on base with a buddy of mine. We lived off base. And, um, so, uh, my, my, she doesn't hear that. She'll get all pissed at me. But, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, she was out running around with some other people and, um, I remember I came home one day and she said, you got to move out, and uh, so I sort of processed that and went to stay with some friends, and then shortly thereafter, I got my, you know, my honorable discharge, and uh, I bought a motorcycle, and uh, I spent the next two years riding around across uh, country three times on my motorcycle just to try and, you know, get everything sorted out.
1: So, so at the end of two years, where did you land?
2: I landed in, uh, in Maryland, so, uh, which is where I grew up. I grew up in, uh, in D.C. and in Mount Rainier, Maryland, which is, um, is a little, a little uh, town right on the edge of D.C. So I ended up in Mount Rainier because I had some cousins there, and I got a job uh, doing uh, um, uh, door work. I was a uh, steel door and frame mechanic which is people that do uh, modifications on steel doors and weld frames together and that sort of stuff. Uh, Did that for a couple of years. And then uh, I became, I went to work in Virginia uh, in a training program to be a bridge carpenter. So I I spent about uh, two and a half, three years becoming a certified bridge carpenter in the state of Virginia. And it's pretty dangerous work also. Uh, there's bridge work cause you're up on, you know, you're up on heights and steel, uh, you know, beams and stuff like that. So I, uh, so I did that for a while and, uh, my mother worked at AT&T and she, she said she could get me a job, which was safer working in the warehouse there. And, uh, so I did, I went to warehouse, uh, worked at the warehouse at AT&T. And, uh, the nice thing about AT&T is they pay for your education. So uh I decided to go back to college. Uh they paid for it. I went to a American University, got my bachelor's, went to George Washington University, got my master's and uh and then when AT&T broke apart, I got a job with uh with the pharmaceutical and and uh did that for about 5 or 6 years and then I was interestingly enough recruited by the CIA. Uh so uh they were looking for uh program managers, senior program managers, with experience in technology, which is what I did. And uh, so I got recruited and hired by the CIA, and I did 10 years as an intelligence officer. Um, and then that's where I retired from five years ago.
1: Well, you know, I, I don't, you're the first person I met who went from being a basically a homeless hippie to a spook. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I think there might be a song in there somewhere.
2: <laughs> I got, I got lots of songs and stories, uh, Todd. So, um, yes, lots of songs and, and stories from my times as a, a merchant seaman, you know, uh, all the, the experiences I had in Sri Lanka, in India, you know, in Africa, you know, apartheid was going on in South Africa and, uh, you know, the, the music in, uh, Trinidad and Tobago, the experiences in going through the Panama Canal, just a million things that, uh, that this global exploration teaches you. You know, the people you meet, the experiences you have, the richness of the, of the cultures and the societies. The world is a rich place, you know, with a lot of wonderful people. And uh, I think we need to celebrate it a lot more.
1: Now, what is your goal Moving forward once we get away from this whole coronavirus thing, what's your goal moving forward musically?
2: I have uh, about twelve more songs that I have written that I want to get recorded and um, so uh, my my goal is to I want to collaborate with some people so that I can um, put together richer arrangements you know I have certain ideas, but you need different points of view to get different sorts of ideas, you know, and concepts for arrangements, you know, with, with a whole variety of things. So I'm just going to, I'm just starting to reach out to some folks, uh, to do some collaboration, you know, for their music and my music to see if we can come up with something. And, uh, but I want to get another, uh, full album out, uh, to, uh, you know, to get it out there. So to me, it's not about the money. It's about the music and, uh, i It comes from my heart, it comes from my soul, and uh I love writing it, I love feeling it, and uh so it means a lot to me when I put it together um so that's that's what I'm looking to do
1: well, what a wonderful thing to pass along to your grandkids, you know that they they can have something musically that doesn't necessarily describe their grandfather but it's part of who he is or was at that time. We never want to be a was, but we're, we're all going to get there sooner or later. But what a wonderful thing to have to be able to pass along to your family members.
2: Yes, and uh, I have 12 grandchildren, by the way, so uh, if there's quite a few of them out there.
1: I was going to say birthdays and holiday time must be a little confusing and chaotic. Ah.
2: Uh, I can't figure it out, you know. My my wife has a has a has a sheet on the refrigerator with everybody's birthday on it. You know, I have you know. It's I can't remember all that stuff. So I that's my wife does that. You know, I just uh, to do what she tells me to do. <laughs>
1: you know? you're a smart man, Joe Genorio. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been been fantastic. I've enjoyed speaking with you sharing your songs with people who are listening, but also between you and I. Um, you're very well, I mean, you've heard them many, many times, I'm sure. And I had listened to probably each song on this C a a minimum of six or seven times. Oh, my. Because I was going through trying to figure out which ones I wanted to open the show, which one I wanted to open mm. the show with, which one I wanted to finish the show with, if I wanted to bring one in it. It has such a wonderful feel that I can only look forward to future recordings by you.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Todd. It's a nice thing to say. Uh, I, I did want to comment on one more song. They, Absolutely. Uh, to mention the Berlin de Ponferrada. Yes. Uh, uh Berlin is a Spanish name for those that are not familiar with that. And, uh, Ponferrada is a city in Northern Spain, about halfway across Northern Spain. Um, and, uh, I had walked into that to that, you know, after walked into that town one evening, it had been a rainy day. It was rainy and it was cold and I was tired. And instead of staying in the normal hostels where you stay, I rented a hotel room. I said, I want a nice warm hotel room with a hot shower, you know, so uh, because I was soaking wet. So uh, I did that. And then I walked out from the hotel and across the plaza where I was, was this little Italian restaurant. So I walked over there, I was reading the menu, and the, this woman came up uh, uh, and took me by the hand. I thought she must have been the maitre d' because uh, Spaniards are very friendly, you know. So she took me by the hand and led me inside and sat me down at the bar and then uh, asked me what I wanted to drink in, in Spanish, of course. And uh, so uh, I told her and then I, and I hadn't actually looked at her face. I'd seen just the side or the back and I turned to look at her and she was like the most beautiful woman I had ever seen in my life. Uh, it just, you know, it was, you know, you read about these, or hear about these things. Somebody, they take your breath away. Yes. Uh, well that, that actually happened to me, you know? So, uh, it wasn't a, a rhetorical thing. It was real. And, uh, And I remember it it took my breath away and I'm staring at this woman, you know, right there who's smiling at me and talking to me in Spanish. And I didn't understand half of what she was saying. And, uh, and it took me a few moments to compose myself, you know, I said, uh, what the hell? And she was, you know, I have a daughter her age Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking, what's she, what's she talking to me for? You know? And, uh, but she turns out later, uh, her cousin was the bartender. And so her cousin said, why are you talking to this guy? You know? And I heard her, they didn't think I understood, but she said, which was really nice. She said in Spanish, well, he was so handsome. I could not talk to him. You see? So I said, wow, isn't that nice? You know? So, uh, so we spent the next two or three hours there, um, you know, in the broken conversation with my limited Spanish, her, her cousin and I, and, uh, at the end of the day, they asked what I did, and I wasn't going to tell them I was a retired CIA guy, because that doesn't <laughs> go over so well, you know, in some, some circles. So I told them I was a singer-songwriter, and um, but I hadn't—they asked me, "What I'd done something. I said, I haven't done anything yet. I'm in the process. And, uh, and, she's, uh, and I, I told her then I would write her a song, you know, so— um, and there was no uh, no hanky panky or nothing funny going on. It was really an innocent night, but I had a unique experience that I don't know how many people have. That you know, where you literally uh, you have your breath taken away by someone's the beauty of something by a you stranger. Know, it's, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, that was that was memorable for me. So uh, that night, I just thinking about it. I then I started to imagine the song. And so this song, Belen de Ponferrada, which I wrote on guitar, but I realized it was not a guitar song. It's a, it's a string song. So I found a guy in Alabama who specializes in string arrangements and uh, asked him to write an arrangement for me. And so uh, this is a combination of me, this guy from Alabama and Bill Bromfield uh, putting together that song.
1: Well, Joe, I'm gonna let you go now. I wish you the best of the rest of the day, and of course, until we can see each other again. And after we hang up, I will let the people listen to Beline de Ponferrada. I hope I pronounced that somewhat correctly. And the um and the show will actually you and I are speaking on a, on a Tuesday. It will be uploaded later today, and then I will announce it in my normal weekly update uh, email to everyone tomorrow so they can they can start listening so but thanks again joe for for spending the time walking you, you must have walked two or three miles while we chatted
2: i hope so right <laughs> <laughs> i hope so so well thank you todd it's been a real honor for you to take the time to show an interest in my music and me and uh, i really appreciate it and i look forward to when we can get together again
1: sounds good joe well enjoy the rest of your walk Thank you. All right. Bye bye now.
2: Bye.
1: Well, that was Joe Genorio, Joe Genorio of Viscal. And again, his website is genorio1.wixsite.com. That is spelled G I N O R I O number one dot W I X S I T E dot com. And you can listen to the songs, you can purchase the whole album, or you can download just one of the tracks, if that's what you'd like to do. Well, thank you so much for listening to this show and for listening every week. It is wonderful and heartwarming for me to check the uh, stats on this show and find out that people from all over the world listen. So wherever you're listening from, thank you so much. The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by me, Todd C. Walker, and I produce it in Frederick, Maryland, at the Wispy Mop Music Studio. All the music we play on the show is played by permission from the artist. Uh, Hopefully you're enjoying the series, and if you are, please share the link. It's wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or you can tell people they can go to either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And before... I talked too long. Let's listen to Bélin de Ponferrada.
0: Bélin de Ponferrada Her smile rising Belinda in Pontevedra, blue eyes took my breath away. Ooh, away. She led me by the hand into a small cafe. We sat down at the bar and she asked me what I'd like to drink. As I gazed to her eyes. The world stood still, I could not think She told me about her family, her work And the things she liked to do But lost in the days Trying to slow the beating of my heart Her smile rising to her eyes In the Pontevedra, blue eyes took my breath away, Ooh, away. And when she smiled at me, my heart soared to the sky, like diamonds on the ocean. Blue eyes reflected in the stars, like petals on a rose. Her velvet lips like blossoms made for love What am I doing here? Trying to catch a shadow of my past We walked out in the rain To another café I saw a hint of sadness An old pain that pleaded To remain somewhere deep in her soul A struggle to find happiness again But here in Ponferava, Everything is possible, my friend And as I find myself lost in the waves Way out of my depth in this world With this girl I told her I'd write a song Just for her She kissed me on the cheek Like a fallen star She disappeared that night I couldn't sleep The sun had faded deep into the night And so I realized, Belen de Ponferrava is a dream. Belen de Ponferrava, her smile rising to her eyes.